we expect MDMA will get through FDA approval in 2024 and psilocybin, which is you know, known generically as magic mushroom, is right behind that. So, uh, my name is Saad Shah and I'm the managing partner and co-founder of a firm called Noetic. Mm -hmm. Noetic is a, a venture fund that we established back in February of 2020 to focus on mental health. It's really focused on all those modalities that play a role or can actually look to cure the problem when it comes to the central nervous system. Right. So what we're really doing is we're, we're sort of breaking up all these various mental health ailments by indication, like treatment-resistant depression, major depressive disorder, anxiety, PTSD, all the way to Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, dementia, traumatic brain injury, ADD, ADHD, autism, and looking at what is actually working for them. and mm -hmm how many of these current modalities can really be disrupted. So we invest in those with those entrepreneurs, scientists, and researchers that are looking to disrupt what is currently, you know, the incumbent when it comes to the standards of care for mental health. So we're looking at drug development, drug discovery, uh, when it comes to psychedelics, for example, but we're looking at other modalities too, you know, different medical technologies, medical devices, uh, something that has a very strong efficacy in solving the problem. Right. And a large focus of yours is psychedelics. Uh, what kind of brought you to this revelation where you can change the world using this tool? Well, this isn't something new. Um, I, psychedelics have been around for a very long time in the form of plant medicine. And it goes right. back actually 25 to 50,000 years you know, ago, because we know from the cave art that we've discovered in many different parts of the world, uh, that there's, you know, uh, depictions of psilocybin or magic mushrooms. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that, uh, you know, throughout history and, and the various cultures, you know, the Soma is the first um, real mention of a psychedelic plant. And um, that was found in the Rig Vedas, and that was in India. Um, we know that the Haoma, uh, is something that was used in during the in in the Persian during the Persian Empire in in, in back in, in Middle East and Mesopotamia, uh, the blue lotus flower played a very prominent role uh, in Egypt. You take a look at many of the Egyptian hieroglyphics, and you'll you know you'll see it kind of um, um, depicted again and again. Um, so uh, we know that it, the Syrian rue, for example, you know, is 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 very prominently featured in in many cultures as well, especially in Mesopotamia in that area. Um, in Asia, we found this uh, in vials. So there's <clears throat> there's enough there anecdotal evidence to suggest that plant medicines played a very important role in many different cultures, going back, you know, quite a, a way Definitely. back. Do you yeah. think that it could have shaped a religion in any way? Uh, Brian Morescu certainly feels, uh, he wrote a, a book um, called The Immortality Key, where he actually talks about how it played a very prominent role in the Judeo-Christian school of thought, right? And how the Greeks uh, used it very prominently, uh, especially the philosophers, to initiate, uh, you know, um, new members in, into, their, into the team. They would go up to Eleusis, and they would be there for about three or four days, and they would partake in a substance that was made of ergot. Now, mm -hmm. ergot is a fungus that grows on wheat, but it is the basis of LSD. 
right. uh, semi-synthetic. Right, and so they would come down from Eleusis and talk about concepts such as democracy. Right. <laughs> you know, uh, we we know in, in modern times there have been so many uh, innovations that have come about because um, of um, um, or were perhaps um, um, you know uh, brought about because of a of a, a psychedelic experience. Be that um, you know coming up with with the actual the Crick and Wasson DNA. Um, uh, uh, configuration or uh, the peloton, um, mm -hmm. you know, or or there's the, the, the so many others. But uh, again, I think what's what's important to understand through history is that it seems that these substances were really reserved by nobility and by the royalty um, for for themselves. It wasn't really shared with with many people. It wasn't shared with with the common person. It wasn't shared with the hoi polloi. Um, and it did play a very important role um, in shaping that part of society where it was, you know, used in, in, in to a great extent. So right. with, with all of that, um, you know, we've sort of come into the 20th century where <clears throat> there was a lot of research done and there was mm -hmm. a fair amount of scientific research done and some trials done. Um, and then it all came to a halt. Uh, with Nixon imposing uh, and putting all these substances on the schedule and abuse list. And why was that, really? I think that was really led by a, a political movement uh, at the time. Uh, Nixon needed a lot of support for the Vietnam War, and he <laughs> had too many, um, you know, very loving hippies uh, going around, um, you know, putting flowers in, in sort of the, the gun barrels and saying, you know, make love, not war. And that was interfering with the process. Um, so uh, just simply took all these substances uh, and put it on the Schedule One abuse list um, and made them illegal. Whereas when you take a look at the framework for what needs to go and, and, and the, the harm that, it, that needs to take place in order to be put on the Schedule One abuse list, you realize that many of the substances should not be there whatsoever. They're not physiologically addictive. You know, mm -hmm. you don't you don't Jones for another ayahuasca ceremony or or a deep uh, mushroom ceremony, for example. Um, you know, we also know that the toxicity levels are very low. But more importantly, um, we know that there's a lot of good that can come about if they're used responsibly and safely um, and in the proper way, uh, as opposed to any harm that they do. I mean, there's certainly a lot of um, substances in the stack where I would put alcohol and tobacco and, and other substances that rank way, way higher mm -hmm. than um, psychedelics. Um, that being said, we do know that psychedelics are not a panacea. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It's not a cure for all things. It's not for everybody. They are very powerful molecules. They need to be respected and revered. Um, and there is a process that one needs to go through to truly appreciate and understand whether that is the right modality uh, to go down or to, right. to, to indulge in. Yeah. Yeah. Is there any evidence as to whether it would be better to have like a macro or micro experience in kind of treating these mental health ailments? Well, <clears throat> there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that suggests that microdosing works. Unfortunately, we don't have any. Um, you know, clinical data or any, you know, data that, that would clearly prove and show that microdosing works. 
Okay, and the reason is that it, it really depends on 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 the actual molecule, but mm -hmm. um, uh, but we do know that macro dosing, uh, depending on the indication, the ailment uh, has known to be very very effective for depression, for uh, substance use disorder, for anxiety, um, uh, for PTSD, um, and and now there's a lot more research going on in many other areas for many other ailments as well. Um, including inflammatory-related ailments. Oh, really? When it comes to microdosing, I think there's a reason why. We, I, the anecdotal evidence suggests, for example, with psilocybin, there have been many, many, many people that have claimed uh, to have some profound benefits from microdosing. Right. And I believe I've heard about right. like neurogenesis and neuroplasticity coming from use of psilocybin as well. Right. So that, that's whether it's micro or macro, we know that, uh, you know, there's new connections formed. We know that there's new cells born. And mm -hmm. so we know that the dendritic spines get thickened. And so it's all good. But the question is between micro and macro. And I think the micro verdict is still out there simply because the way that the micro right now is working is, you know, folks are taking small amounts of, of psilocybin on a daily basis on a protocol that's five days on and two days off, and they repeat this every week. Um, but one doesn't know whether the batch that they got from Bob is the same as a batch that they got from Sandy or somebody else. And and there's no way to, to you know, um, um, kind of standardize the batch. Right. Once we get into the synthetic psilocybin um, and you know exactly what molecule you're taking and the dosage, one can start to, I think, do proper tests and see whether, you know, the impact that microdose has. And what's important to know is that, you know, when do you start to see the benefits at what period of time? Uh, right now, it's suggested that, you know, you may need to, uh, be on a certain protocol for microdosing for at least a year to two years before you see any effects. Um, so I think it's too, still too early to tell about microdosing, microdosing, yes. And which substance would you say, if you had to guess, is leading the charge here, it would be the first in these clinics widespread? Well, right now, what's leading the charge is MDMA, which technically is not a psychedelic. Um, but given the fact that it is... Um, you know, it is uh, um, mind-altering of sorts, right? Um, mm -hmm. it, it is, it, it, that's what's leading the chat. MDMA um, is a, a intactogen. It's an empathogen, right? It, it uh, um, brings about a, a real sense of, of empathy, um, you know, and, and it is working on the dopamine receptor as opposed to the serotonin receptor. Um, and so, um we know that it's been highly efficacious in helping those that are su suffering from PTSD and anxiety. Mm -hmm. It was used back in the 60s um, as a love drug uh, and specifically used for couples that were facing uh, or dealing with some you know, uh, issues. Um, and it's very heart opening. So MDM MDMA is being led right now by MAPS, uh, non-for-profit entity. Um, and uh, that's the multi, um, multidisciplinary association of psychedelic sciences. And so we expect MDMA will get through FDA approval in 2024. And psilocybin, which is you know, known generically as magic mushroom, is right behind that. So I think in 2024, you will see both MDMA and psilocybin get through FDA uh, for, for distinct indications. 
Um, the trials have gone exceedingly well. Um, there have been a few glitches here and there, but overall on par, not only have both of these substances been uh, given the breakthrough designation status by the FDA, BTD status, breakthrough designation, which you can go onto the FDA's website and take a look at every instance they've, they've uh, you know, made anything or designated anything as breakthrough designation. So they've done that on five occasions uh, with psychedelics more broadly, um, mm -hmm. twice for ketamine, um, twice for psilocybin, once for MDMA. So the the way we're looking at it is that, you know, the the, the watershed moment will take place in 2024 uh, when these two get through uh, FDA approval. Right. And do you think it's going to be largely self-use at home or is it going to be mostly in clinic? I think that um, the protocol will be where you need to go to a clinic or um, somebody that has been um, approved as a facilitator, as a guide. Um, uh, but I think it, this will be very much down the pathway of a clinical approach um, under the proper guidance um, where you're being monitored. Uh, and then there may eventually be a time um, where some of these new chemical entities that are coming out that have certain psychedelic components to them but have been de-risked in a big way where the duration is much shorter or there isn't as strong a hallucinogenic effect to it um, that could be uh, taken safely at home. But I think we're, we're, you know, we're not close to that yet. I think initially what we're seeing is just the way it's been approved for ketamine to be administered. You've got to go to a clinic. And when you go to that clinic, there's a protocol that you need to follow. And depending on your situation, there's going to be, you know, fair amount of talk therapy. And then you will actually have the ketamine session followed by some more talk therapy. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that that's the way we're probably going to look at the way these these uh, other molecules are going to be rolled out as well. It's right. not home, uh, call me after three days and let me know how you're feeling kind of a situation. True. And then you personally, have you had an experience that really flipped a switch in your mind that psychedelics can change the world? Sure. Uh, you know, I've uh, tried my own cooking, uh, I guess, to say, I mean, I, uh, so for, and and just to be clear, I, I'm not cooking anything in my basement, just, so, you know, uh, but, but no, I, the, the reason why this has been so compelling for me um, is because I started to study the history, the pharmacology, the neuroscience, um, you know, the ethnobotany behind plant medicine and, and psychedelics about 20 years ago. Um, and I was uh, turned on to this area by a few authors that I read. And, um, and I eventually then, after having read up about it for as long as I had, I, I went down to Brazil in 2009 um, to have my first ever experience with any psychedelic substance, which was ayahuasca. Oh, wow. um, part of that, I hadn't tried anything. And uh, that was uh, very much a, an eye-opening experience on many different levels not only in terms of, um, you know, what I went through, but also what I experienced others go through. And I knew that it was game changing. And essentially the one common thing that came back was, although it was a very difficult and taxing experience for almost everybody, um, you know, um, the one common thread was that everybody felt they went through maybe 10 or 15 years of psychotherapy in one night. Um, so we, you know, that was, was game changing for me in, in many regards, but at that time there was no market for it. There was nothing going on commercially. Um, this was simply 
a tool that was being used by certain communities around the world uh, and with, with very profound results. Um, so I was more interested in sort of, you know, digging deeper into what was the mechanism of action? How does it actually work? What are the other psychedelics that could do something similar? You know, and how far back does this go? Did we forget about this technology? Did we uh, lose interest in this technology? What actually happened? What disrupted it? Um, so there began my journey, but it's been a 20 year journey. Right. And have the studies picked up exponentially kind of since then? Very much so. This is not only just a renaissance um, um, period uh, for psychedelics. This is actually a renaissance period for neuroscience. Right. More about the human brain in the last five years than we have any other point in history. Uh, the pandemic had a very big factor to play here, right? Uh, lots of people lonely, depressed, sad. Um, what actually happened? How did that actually end up strengthening the default mode network, um, you know, that that tries to protect us and its default mode network is where our memories lie, where our trauma resides, um, and, um, you know, where, um, where our ego sits. And so there's a lot that we learned about what was happening, but also because we've learned a great deal from, um, you know, um, other areas in health sciences, in particular, the when it comes to the personalization of cancer treatments. So um, there is a growing unmet need, mental mm -hmm. health thing worse. Um, suicides are going up drastically. Um, you know, treatment resistant depression, major depressive disorder, PTSD, anxiety is becoming quite prevalent. Um, and we are in a living in a society, at least in the Western world, where everybody, you know, gets um, it's it's overdiagnosed. Folk, folks are getting overdiagnosed, and they're getting prescribed these SSRIs, the selective uh, serotonin reuptake inhibitors, antidepressants, and they're very addictive. And they, it, it can be very difficult to get off of them as well. It takes you know, there's so many cases that we've read about where somebody goes in to speak to their psychiatrist or doctor because they're having a little bit of work-related anxiety. And they're put on some sort of a benzodiazepine or another form of an SSRI, and then which was unnecessary. And then it literally takes them about eleven to twelve years to get off of those, right? And That's and crazy. so the the current paradigm is not working. Um, we know that these molecules certainly uh, offer a lot of promise. There are other modalities that are also offering a lot of promise. I will add, but psychedelics certainly have. Um, shown to be very efficacious with low toxicity, um, uh, but there is a safety mechanism uh, that needs to be addressed because of the uh, of the hallucinatory factor here. So um, I, I think that you know we're really at the precipice of it, um, but overall it sort of created a bit of a, a, a perfect storm in a good way for or a Goldilocks moment I should add that maybe yeah. a better way to put it a Goldilocks moment for neuroscience given the unmet need growing, given what we learned from cancer treatments, um, given all the, uh, not only anecdotal evidence, but all the research that's gone on in some in incredible institutions such as Johns Hopkins, mm -hmm. Imperial College in London, um, right, at Stanford, at, at Harvard. Um, uh, so with all of that collected, we now have a framework and a platform and a, you know, that, that allows us to really seed a lot of these opportunities. I mean, I, I'll just give you one, and, you know, sort of a, an, an, sorry, an analogy here, which is that <clears throat> we're using Zoom right now to have this conversation, 
Mm -hmm. And Zoom wouldn't be able to be around or Google Meets or, or some of these other platforms that do something similar if if there wasn't the coming together of three or four distinct things, right? You had to have uh, a, a pervasive broadband technology. You needed to have, um, you know, um, Wi-Fi that was, that was you know, uh, at, at high octane. Um, and you need to have cloud computing come into place. With, and then once all those three came into place, which is really in 2008, 2009, um, could the Zooms of the world come out with their product? Um, right? So in a, in a similar way, what we're seeing in neuroscience is a lot of these different sort of facets coming together in a way that's creating the foundation for these researchers and scientists to do some incredible work because of how we've understood the various mechanisms of actions um, and how we've actually understood the receptors working and um, what stimulates them and 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 how to circumvent some of the issues that, that you know that were prevalent in the past. Right. And do any psychedelics show any sort of addictive property? Has that been? No, I mean, uh, so the classic psychedelics, no, nobody, as I mentioned before, nobody has a jonesing to do mushrooms again or LSD again or or or, or ayahuasca or, or DMT. Um, you know, they, they can be very taxing. They can be, depending on your situation, it could be, uh, it could be a difficult sort of, you know, exercise to go through. One of the reasons why they have this term a bad trip. Um, right. Now, um, certainly there are a lot of things that one can do to try and minimize the risk of having a bad trip. And that goes with the preparation that goes into it and uh, ensuring that you follow a proper protocol. Um, but the psych psychedelics are not, do not have physiologically addictive properties, meaning that you, unlike alcoholism or heroin, where your body starts to break down, if you don't get the substance, that doesn't happen with psychedelics. That being said, with a compound like ketamine, um, which again, right, is not classic psychedelic, but it is you know, bucketed into uh, psychedelics. And it was the first thing that was really approved. J&J &J came out with a nasal spray called Spravato to treat depression, right? Now, ketamine, if you take copious amounts of ketamine, which is which has been around 50 years, and ketamine has been legal for 50 years, it's an anesthetic, right? It was, uh, it's the, so it's been used for a long time, but um, if you use copious amounts of it for a long period of time, it can have addictive properties, yes. Yeah, there's a big stigma consider for strength. <laughs> yeah. Source rank wise, right? Yeah. I would consider um, um, ketamine to as as your psych, you know, as your classic psychedelic. I'm really looking at a lot of the um, substances that have been derived from, um, you know, some sort of a plant medicine that was was defined as plant medicine. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, those for me are are the classic psychedelics. Right. I want to ask you about your kind of your bring up. Did you always know you were? headed towards finance like before you found out about psychedelics? Wow, that's a good question. Um, it's, no, a, it's a long, windy road. I know that, but it's a long, windy road. I, I'll, I'll try and make it short as, as I can. Um, I initially wanted to be a diplomat. I come from a long line of diplomats in, in the family, you know, in, in around me. So my father was a career diplomat. He's retired. Um, you know, I've, I've had, um, relatives that were, were diplomats, um, uncles, and so on. So um, for me, uh, I thought that that would be the path. 
when I uh, was about to graduate from my undergrad uh, in New York, I, I went and met with the UN and they said that now, you know, the quota from uh, the part of the world that I come from um, and, and I, I was born in, in, in Pakistan. So for, for natural sort of, uh, at that time, I was still a Pakistani citizen. Um, the quota was full. So for two years, I couldn't join the, the UN. Uh, as a diplomat, and I was like, oh, okay, or join the UN, not as a diplomat, necessarily, but join the UN and the workforce there, uh, and then I was like, okay, well, what do I do now, and they said, well, why don't you look at banking, and I was like, okay, I'll look at banking, and um, so I got into banking um, reluctantly. Uh, I'm really a, a right brain that's uh, stuck in a left brain world, I guess, and so, um, uh, but it was an incredible training uh, ground for me, uh, initially in real estate um, investment banking and then moved on to the trading floor um, and was with debt syndication and then moved on to foreign exchange and commodity sales and trading um, and then eventually became uh, the global head of the financial engineering deal team for World Bank of Canada uh, before I left to uh, join forces with uh, my other partners um, to, um, to build and grow an asset management business. And that focused on very esoteric hedge fund strategies and that did well for us and that was about another you know nine years or so uh, until we sold that business to a large private equity firm based in the us uh, and once that was done which was in 2014 and i stuck around for another year and a half or so um thereafter then i i, I was now finally able to do the things that i wanted to do and focus on the areas that i wanted to focus on mm -hmm. which are very much impact driven so i have a particular um, you know, uh, interest in education technology. I have an interest in um, certain aspects of what's going on in renewable energy, uh, but mental health is is my biggest focus and the area that I've been sort of focused on studying um, uh, in different ways for, for the longest amount of time, personally. So to finally be able to do something in the space and use the toolbox that I've been, you know, amassing over the years is just a win-win. I just feel that I've kind of hit the holy grail. That's awesome. And you say you're you're a right brain guy. What's your creative outlet? What do you? How do you get it out? You know, I I uh, um, I'm a storyteller. At the end of the day, I, I feel I'm, I can you know, tell. Uh, but it's certainly my uh, my interest. So be that through writing, be that through um, um, you know narration uh, in different forms. Uh, I've um, I've had an interest in, in film for, for quite some time. I feel that film is an excellent medium to get a message across. Um, so I co-produced a, um, a short documentary that uh, was selected at, um, at Tribeca in 2017. It was uh, called Shooting War. It's about the uh, Iraq War, 24 minutes. I um, shot a narrative that I wrote and produced um, that hasn't been circulated anywhere because I didn't feel great about it. But again, I, I try and find those sort of outlets and medium to express thoughts and ideas and stories. And I, I want to hear about one of your family members who's directing Star Wars. That's insane. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, no, Charmaine, uh, um is, uh, she's, she's my cousin. She's, um, she, she's won two Oscars for short documentary films. Um, uh, a film called A Girl in the River and another film that was called um, Saving Face. Uh, and both of those films had a huge impact uh, in actually overturning certain laws and rules 
pertaining to honor killing and you know um and and throwing acid on on somebody's face um which seems draconian and, and uh, archaic but actually happens in many parts of the world um and so she's had a very you know she's had a fantastic career uh in in film and then ultimately uh was one of the directors behind uh, miss marvel that came out on disney um and recently she was um, selected to be the the next director to to uh to direct a, a feature star wars film so she'll be doing that uh, in the next year or so and i think it's a 2024 maybe a 2025 release but, but very excited about about uh, you know uh, that for her yes right that's so awesome and then one final question for you if you could give your 20 year old self a piece of advice the most important thing you would tell yourself what would it be i think it's to have a lot more conviction and, and confidence and to you know find a way to really um, um have confidence uh, and have con more conviction behind your ideas um mm -hmm. i think it's tricky because i think my 20 year old self was uh uh you know um, it at times may have been uh, overconfident uh, as well. But I, I think that it's to say that, look, um, you've got to find a way to be equanimous, right? And so how do you uh, maintain and be grounded both in times and periods where things are going really badly for you, but also in times where things are going really well for you, right? Um, because in either situation, I mean, this too shall pass. And life and its roller coaster rides, uh, you know, the ups and downs are going to continue um, in different ways and shapes. And there'll be like, you know, very highs, ups and low downs and, and, and all various shapes and sizes. So um, being grounded, staying humble, I think is uh, incredibly important um, throughout this exercise and not to take anything personally. I think that would be the other thing, um, right? Just do not take anything personally and stay the course. And so I think those are some of the few things that I would say to myself if, if I had met my 20-year-old self. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really my appreciate pleasure. it. It's good, good, to, good to see you again. And, and Yeah, awesome to see you. The toxicity levels are very low. But more importantly, um, we know that there's a lot of good that can come about if they're used responsibly and safely.